Louder! Thrill me. Black as midnight on a moonless night. Bitches leave. Groovy. Fucking hold up, hold up. Well then, there, motherfucker! It's got a death curse. Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. Forever deep, <laughs> Oh! Damn enchiladas! These guys are laughing. Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machis, mode dripping, master podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brandon A. Lane, bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. The world is full of kings and queens who blind your eyes and steal your dreams. It's heaven and hell. If those immortal words are falling upon deaf ears tonight, then you're probably listening to the wrong podcast. That being said, tonight we're going to be doing something a little different than normal. Rather than an in-depth retrospective of a cult film, I wanted to talk about this new career-spanning documentary I just saw about my all-time favorite musician, the man on the Silver Mountain, the late, great, heavy metal icon, Ronnie James Dio. Now, there's no script, there's no format, this is just going to be a stream of consciousness where I loosely overview the documentary, which is called Dreamers Never Die, by the way, and there's going to be some spoilers, so if you don't want anything spoiled, stop this right now, and when this is available on streaming, that being the documentary, not this podcast, or on disc, check it out then. No, I do not want anybody hitting the high seas of piracy, so no Pirate Bay for you, Rant Army. So, uh, let's just start from the beginning. Dio was born Ronald James Patavona in July 1942. This year would actually have been his 80th birthday, and unfortunately, for reasons we'll get into later on in the documentary, he was unable to make it to that stage of his life, but he left a fucking legacy that we're going to celebrate tonight just the same. Grew up in Cortland, New York, um, with loving but very strict Catholic parents, uh, Italian background, um, very, very superstitious from the old world, and oddly enough, uh, Ronnie would actually become an altar boy, which considering his forays into heavy metal and hard rock just makes it a hilarious juxtaposition. So almost from the very beginning, Ronnie was musically inclined, being that he was an ex- incredibly skilled French horn player. His father would have him practice three hours a day, every day. Ronnie's professional repertoire didn't include playing the horn, But it did yield an awesome side effect. It gave him an above and beyond vocal control, which led to him being, in my eyes, the greatest heavy metal singer of all time. Ronnie would play in several bands, uh, including Ronnie and the Red Caps, Ronnie Dio and the Prophets. But his first taste of success came from a band called the Electric Elves, who would then change their names to the Elves and then change their names simply to Elf. Now, one of the things that the documentary brings up about this era that I was just not in on was that they were going home from playing a gig. It's late at night. They're in a van and a drunk driver crosses the lane and hits them head on. And this caused the death of their guitarist, Nick Pantis. Now that's awful. We're an awful obstacle to, to overcome. And this caused sort of them to think like, well, is this the end of the band? And thankfully, you know, they were, they were able to continue on from there but one thing the documentary doesn't talk about is I had never heard, you know, the story about 
the death of uh, Nick Pantis. But and I understand why this was not included in the documentary, but I'm going to tell it for the sake of anyways. But there was the mysterious death of their drummer, they being Elf, and his name was Gary Driscoll. He also played with Rainbow uh, for their first album. Um, I, before I talk about this, it's completely understandable why this was featured in the documentary, but it's kind of fascinating. So fuck it. I'm going to talk about it now. Uh, so, like, 1987, Gary was found murdered. I mean, like, not just murdered like somebody killed him, but, like, they fucked his body up. So, a couple of men were accused, with one being acquitted of the charges, and the other one fleed the country before he could be charged. So, his murder has gone uh, unsolved, which is just horrifically sad. But from what I've read about it, this was, like, some kind of Scarface-style shit that, like, it probably had to do with drugs. But, holy fuck, that's just a crazy crazy situation so two members of elf you know met met bitter ends um you know and it's just it's awful to say um anyways uh, elf would uh they get signed to a record deal which would lead to three albums the the self-titled album elf that's the one with the iconic album cover of the you know the elf standing on the front and then there's carolina county ball and trying to burn the sun i love these albums uh, they've only appreciated, in my opinion, over uh, the years. Plus, the song Dixie Lee Junction uh, mentions Oak Ridge, which is just down the road from the Black Lodge. So I, I'm as a kid, I was super over the moon about that because, I mean, there's this New Yorker guy and he's singing about, you know, a place in Tennessee that's right down the road. I thought that was pretty damn cool. Um, so when Elf got on the radar of being signed, they had a meeting with Clive Davis and Clive Davis was this incredibly huge guy, guy in the music industry, like a make or break kind of guy. And there were, he was going to audition rainbow and they're going to come in and talk about, you know, terms of possibility of signing them and everything. It just so happened that Ian Pace and um, Roger Glover from deep purple happened to sit in on this meeting. They were interested in possibly getting into the production side. You know, it's like a side hustle. And Roger Glover uh, actually did some production. He did uh, Sin After Sin for Judas Priest. Um, and I'm not sure if Ian Pace, uh, if he did or not. But Deep Purple, sort of like, they're coming, you know, to the end of the their classic Mach 2 era. But, I mean, they're still, like, at that point, I mean, they're, fuck, they're, I mean, they're arguably the biggest band on the planet you know, it, it's them, Led Zeppelin, you know, and, and and Black Sabbath in terms of like rock royalty. But uh, Elf and Ronnie in particular, they just they worshipped Deep Purple because they were probably the most proggy of of those bands. They uh, Deep Purple gets a lot of flack, but man, they they did a lot of things differently than the other two, you know, big metal hard rock bands on the on the pie chart of that time. But this led to a collaboration for the ages. Um, Elf got to do several tours with Deep Purple. And unfortunately, in an unintended way, this was sort of broke, break up both bands because Deep Purple guitarist, my all-time favorite guitarist, Richie Blackmore, decided that the color purple wasn't good enough for him. And he wanted to, he wanted the entire damn spectrum. So he formed Rainbow. So there was a caveat. And it's one that you can kind of give Ronnie credit for because even though like Elf was a was a perfectly good band for the music they were playing, 
they were not good enough to be in a band with Richie Blackmore. Um, sans, sans Ronnie. Ronnie was absolutely the standout. But those guys, as good a players as they were, they were, they were not in the league of, of Richie Blackmore. But Richie agreed to this because he really wanted Ronnie. So the first album is basically the fourth Elf album, but on, but on fucking steroids. And I mean, Rainbow. Rainbow, Rainbow, Rainbow. I, I, if not for inconsistent lineups and failed uh, reunions, uh, Rainbow very well may be my favorite band of all time. Those three albums that they did with Ronnie are absolutely perfect. And the first album in particular, it just kicks major ass. They didn't mention this in the doc, but the first album has one major flaw and it's the album closer, Still I'm Sad, which is a cover of a Yardbird song and just... Oh my God, their version of it is just it on, you know, human growth hormone. This is the ultimate warrior level of steroided covers. Um, There's just one problem. It's a big one. The album version doesn't have any vocals. And this would be rectified when they would perform it live because, which is a stupid decision not to, uh, but you have arguably top three greatest hard rock heavy metal singers of all time and you don't put him to use because you wanted an instrumental on the album especially to close the album I don't know I don't get the decision um another thing they don't mention in the doc is that I wished they had talked about the lineup change after the first album so Elf is out and arguably my favorite lineup of musicians comes in but man, I this would have made for great talking points. Like these guys that he played with, I mean, some of which were related to Ronnie, and they're like, "Yeah, guess what? You're out of the band." And I think this is one of the positives and negatives about um, people stewarding a documentary about somebody they have a vested interest in. They're going to make them look great, which is great for the the. You know, to tell the story of the iconicness of somebody, but at the same time, it does you make skew things and takes away from the reality. So I know that, like he and his uh, his cousin, you know, they uh, they had collaborated over the years on different projects, so there couldn't be too much contempt in this. However, Gary Driscoll, after being booted from Rainbow, had a slow decline. In you know, in drug use, so and then eventually he did get murdered. Um, so I'm just it's kind of an interesting idea that they could have maybe brought this into the documentary right here, and but I can see why they didn't. Um, so we have this new lineup, and it's my favorite lineup of musicians ever. We got Cozy Powell on drums, Bob Daisley on, on bass. And you know Richie and Ronnie, that that lineup, the the Rainbow Rising lineup is just fan fucking tastic. Rainbow second album Rising is in my top five favorite albums of all time. It's just banger after banger. Stargazer alone is the crowning achievement for like if if that was the only song that Ronnie James Dio ever did, he's Hall of Fame worthy, Hall of Fame worthy every day in my book. 
But um, it's it's my favorite album cover of all time, definitely. And I here in the Black Lodge, I have an autographed copy of the vinyl. I got to meet Ken Kelly, you know, the famed uh, artist who did that and um, Kiss Love Gun and Destroyer. Um, he he's the greatest album artist. Uh, album cover artist of all time and unfortunately he's passed away so I'm really glad that I got that but even if it wasn't autographed that album has to be on my on my wall because it's it means so much to me sonically and in a visual sense it just it, it just represents rock hard rock to me it's the perfect rock album and so we've we're going from you know a crowning achievement in terms of what most bands would kill to have. And then we have another lineup change with the third album, switching out uh, Tony Carey uh, for David Stone on the keyboards. But Long Live Rock and Roll is another fantastic album from beginning to end. It's not my favorite Rainbow song, but Kill the King has my all-time favorite guitar solo. Now, I'm sure there's going to be people out there that's going to say, well, Steve Vai or Yngwie Malmsteen or blah, blah, blah. They're better guitar players. And you know what? In a technical level, you would be correct. But let me say something controversial, but ultimately factual. When you treat music like numbers, you don't leave room for exploration. Every great advancement in guitar playing has come from mistakes. That's, that statement is not 100% true, but by and large, I think it is. And Blackmore is such a interesting guitar player because he could fuck up and make it work. And it's actually one of the, probably the downfalls of, of a lot of people who played with him because he, like another, uh, a different genre, but a guy like Prince, where they were so fucking talented and they, they expected so much from the people playing with them that they would get on stage and they would just throw monkey wrenches left and right into, into the, into the set and see, okay, let's see how good you are. Let's see if you can keep up with me. Let's see if you can, uh, perform at a high level, um, with a blindfold and a Ferrari on a, going down a, a hill during an ice storm. And one of my, not one of my all-time favorite performance by Rainbow is from Munich, Germany. It's from 1977. It's like right before they released Long Live Rock and Roll. This it's a still it's still a phrase from Fat Tony. This is the apotheosis of what live music can and should be. Uh, the, if you're if you're going to equate a religious experience with music. Well, this would be the come to Jesus moment for me. Seeing this live performance, hearing it, it is it is never depreciated. It's one I could put on any time, and I'm going to just I'm going to get something from it every single time. But this band, fuck, they're they're so fucking good, and unfortunately, uh, it's sad that this incarnation of the band, they never recorded another album, mostly due to Richie Blackmore winning, you know, a little more of a commercial appeal. He had never been able to break into America and that's where the big money was. And, you know, I mean, at this point, Blackmore had been in music for, you know, more than a decade. So he's wanting, he's wanting those, 
checks to have a z- another zero at the end so he can kick back and live a, a rock star lifestyle, which is which is understandable. But at the same time, like bands now, like they they would fucking kill to be that well off, you know, but perspective is everything. Uh, it was a time of, you know, where the music industry could support great avarice and, you know, this leads to Ronnie leaving the band. He just didn't want to write love songs. And, and then you get down to earth with Graham Bonnet, which is a fantastic album, but I just, it's, it's, it's a great album because it's that, that version of the band with Ronnie. I just don't, I just don't think it would work. And, um, the other issue is that man, Richie Blackmore was incredibly difficult to work with. Now, I talked about him throwing monkey wrenches into the live set, which would drove, which would have driven anybody crazy. But he was just such an odd person. And a few years ago, there was a really good documentary that came out um, called The Richie Blackmore Story. And it is horribly skewed because, you know, he's still alive and can produce it. So he he tells the tale he wants to tell. Um, But he's still alive. And he's not in the Dio documentary, and I think that is a huge miss. Um, whether he said no, or he wasn't asked at all, or they couldn't track him down, he's an elusive fella, and you gotta you gotta talk to him almost in reverse psychology to get him to do anything. But it, it's a shame. How do you not have Richie Blackmore in this documentary, even if it was him just talking absolute shit about Ronnie? It would have added something to the overall production. So that's my first big criticism. There's no uh, Richie Blackmore. Um, so Rainbow go on several different incarnations and by and large would produce great music, but it was never the same without Ronnie. Now, prior to his passing, drummer Cozy Powell tried in vain to broker a reunion of the classic, you know, the Rainbow Rising and long live rock and roll era, but it was all in vain. And now it will never happen. Um, both Ronnie and Cozy are dead, and, and Rainbow has gotten back together. You know, on in the broadest of terms, Richie has uh, gotten together with Ronnie Romero, who's fucking fantastic. And they re-recorded some songs, and you know they did one new song, and they've performed live a handful of times, and. I would love a new Rainbow album with with any lineup, in particular with with Ronnie Romero. If you know Ronnie James Dio is unavailable, and um, as long as he's buried six feet under, that's probably how it's going to be. Um, but it just it sucks that like too little, too late. Um, it could have if they had done that in the you know the the early two thousands. You want to talk about changing the course of history? Uh, it did. I don't know that it would have been better or if it would have been worse for Ronnie in the, in the way that things panned out, but I certainly would like to live in the alternate reality or at least see the alternate reality where that could have been, could have been a thing. <sighs> so it's a well-known and very worn out story, but Ozzy Osbourne, due to years of drug abuse, he ex- exits Black Sabbath and Ronnie takes his place. The first album Ronnie did with Sabbath called Heaven and Hell, it's gone like platinum four or five times. It's in the, you know, top top five Sabbath albums in terms of sales. It it gave the band a boost both commercially and creatively, and after 
a couple of Sabbath albums, uh, the ones that had come before, they it they they allowed basically Ronnie came in at probably the best time because I mean if he failed it's like well Sabbath was already failing but he came in and he boosted the band's profile back up and because of that um, it had to ignite some egos unfortunately um, Heaven and Hell is my favorite album of all time Heaven and Hell the song is my favorite song of all time and Black Sabbath is my favorite band of all time and as far as the album is concerned, it's like 99% perfect. Um, I I personally think that Walk Away is eh, probably the closest thing to filler on there. Um, you take that song off, I, I think there, it's undeniably all killer, no filler in my book. But that being said, it's it's still my favorite album of all time. Desert Island album. If this was the only thing I could ever listen to for the rest of my life, or if I'm on death row, my final request is, you know, I want a fucking steak and I want to hear Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell and then, you know, fucking inject me or put me in the electric chair and we'll ride the lightning. Pun intended. So, <laughs> so in rapid succession, uh, they would record Mob Rules in 1981 and it's not as, as successful as Heaven and Hell, but it's it's a fucking successful album, definitely, in terms of you know, albums sold, but, you know, inevitably, you know, you're going to hit a point where your people are just not going to buy your stuff in the, the same amount that they did the first time. Um, but they still were doing really, really well. And this, unfortunately, like I said earlier, bred some contempt and the ego started getting out of control. And well, they went into the studio to mix Sabbath's first official live album, Live Evil. Well, the band fell apart, but this wouldn't be the end of Sabbath and Ronnie's uh, coexistence. Um, one of the big things that the documentary lacks from this section is the rivalry between Sabbath and Ozzy during the time, and more specifically, Ozzy and Dio. And there, there's instances of both of, of these guys throwing shade at one another. Um, and it's, it's sad because I think both of them may have been kind of manipulated into feeling this way, even though like if you put them in the same place, they probably would have got along famously, but that's beside the point. So long and the short of it, Sabbath had a manager by the name of Don Arden. Don Arden's daughter was Sharon Arden. Sharon Arden married Ozzy Osbourne, became his manager, and we all know that woman as Sharon Osbourne. And Sharon Osbourne, through just for fucking love of Ozzy and the hate of her father, I mean, they, they went out of their way to, like, badmouth Sabbath. And there was sort of a pissing race during that time because both Heaven and Hell and Blizzard of Oz came out in 1980, around the same time, and they both did comparable numbers. I think, obviously, now Blizzard of Oz has gone off in the complete opposite direction where it is just, you know, probably close to Diamond or, you know, headed in that traje trajectory. But that's a story for another time. But the, the pissing... Uh, and moaning between groups is probably didn't start out personal, but it became personal. 
and uh, one of the I think they're both insecure uh, Ozzy is at the point where like he's having to prove himself as a solo artist like was Black Sabbath great or was, or was I great and in Black Sabbath and Ronnie is sort of in the same position it's like well is Black Sabbath the band great or was Ozzy great and will I be able to do something comparable also he's left you know Rainbow so I think both of them were in insecure positions but one of the things directly that like I, I'm surprised they didn't include in the documentary that was a direct fuck you to Dio from the Aussie camp was when they were doing the speak of the devil uh, era tours. And this was a contractual obligation where Ozzy had to record another black Sabbath album. So he recorded a live album doing all black Sabbath covers were during, during that tour, which it's a fucking fantastic show. There's a really good um, concert uh, speak of the devil with, um, you know, the the whole stage show and everything. But they had a dwarf that they kept on stage and he, they called him Ronnie. So that was that was their their way of PUing on Ronnie. Now, in later years, even though, you know, Dio has been very upfront about the fact that, like, you know, that he's a better singer than Ozzy, and, and debatably so, but they, they both do things differently, so I'll leave that to the argument in the comments below. But Dio actually paid tribute to Ozzy on an album. The song, um, oh crap, uh, King of Rock and Roll, he's always said was a song written about Ozzy. And I do think there was a reverence there, and they, they probably could have got along personally, but the the camps and the divide, and it's probably PR people stirring the pot, much like they did with Dokken, you know, and, and the contempt between George Lynch and um, Don Dokken. We've got to manufacture something to make them more interesting, and, and eventually the lie becomes reality. Whatever the case, um, I, we never we never got a, a Dio and an Aussie collaboration, which I think um, the world would have benefited from, but it is what it is. Um, this specific occurrence, uh, happens later on in the timeline, but I, I wasn't, it wasn't touched on in the documentary at all, but Ronnie and Sabbath, they would reunite in the early nineties to record Dehumanizer. It's not a perfect album, but they started out with a few existing song ideas from the Geezer Butler band, and it just wasn't a, a Sabbath project from the ground up. And it, it kind of shows not that it's unlistenable, but it just it's not the it's not the Sabbath album that we could have got if it kind of started out as a Sabbath project. Um, the tour was doing well. Sabbath was doing well. There's just one problem. They were scheduled to play a couple of nights in Costa Mesa opening for Ozzy. Long story short, prideful Ronnie says, nope, and he doesn't play the shows. This does lead to a cool moment where Rob Halford from Judas Priest fills in for a couple of a uh, couple of nights playing the first night, basically Dio era Sabbath, and the second night playing Ozzy era Sabbath. And later on, they got a mini reunion with uh, the original Black Sabbath. So it was a cool moment for the people in Costa Mesa, but Dio was just not having it. <laughs> Um, believe it or not, Ronnie's story with Sabbath, it's still not over, but uh, 
first we got a Dio proper with the first solo album, Holy Diver, which is probably what most people would know him for. Uh, if that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, that's up for debate. I mean, just look at it. Stand Up and Shout, Caught in the Middle, and my personal favorite, Gypsy. They're all classics, but there was a huge hit on that album called Rainbow in the Dark. And one thing the documentary does that I I never known about is they had recorded the song, and they're listening to it, and they're in the studio, and Jimmy Bain, who had played bass in Rainbow, the second incarnation of Rainbow. And then you've got... Um, you know, the other guys from the band and they're there and they're kind of like listening around and they're like, you know what? This is, uh, this is missing something. So we went over to a keyboard and he starts do, 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 do. And a fucking classic was birthed out of, you know, this synth keyboard riff that he just wrote and played in one take. And I thought this was amazing, but the the thing about it is that Ronnie did not want to release it. He was terrified about, you know, being called a sellout. And he had made such a grandstanding point about like, well, I'm leaving Rainbow because I don't want to write this kind of music. And this was a more upbeat song, but he ultimately relented and they fucking printed money with this song. And another thing that's not mentioned in the documentary, but who remembers this buds for you. They had a Budweiser commercial that harped, you know, the, the song from, uh, <laughs> uh, rainbow in the dark, but they changed the lyric. This buds for you. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty fucking uh, crossover right there. When, when beer companies are wanting to use your music that means that there's probably some correlation between your music and beer drinkers. And beer drinkers are the backbone of this country. God damn it. <laughs> um, you get two more albums of the classic Dio lineup, uh, Last in Line and Sacred Heart. Another cool thing of the documentary uh, shows is the production of the music video for The Last in Line, which was directed by Don Coscarelli. And being that I'm a huge horror fan, I'm so ashamed to admit that I had no idea that he directed the music video. For for those of you who don't know, he did uh, Phantasm, Beastmaster, uh, Bubba Hotep, where an, uh, an elderly Elvis fights a mummy. Um, good stuff, uh, you know, very much of its time. But it's cool to see that Don Coscarelli had his hand in, in, um, in Dio. So there's some nice horror crossover there. Uh, Dio's third album, Sacred Heart, is where the wheels start coming off. The documentary highlights the dissension between guitarist uh, Vivian Campbell and Ronnie. Uh, to make an incredibly long story short, each band member was promised like a more equi equitable share of the third album, which for all we know may have been given if Vivian had stayed. But they were playing this huge tour and there was just, you know, lots of stage props and a fucking dragon that he kills with a lightsaber. It's fucking amazing. But they were paying for this out of pocket. And this was a, a big production back when, you know, you could do those types of things and, you know, get a return on them. Like who who other than like Kiss can can do like these big productions these days? Maybe Rob Zombie, but they're, they're few and far between, you know, for to be in, playing in big, big places. Uh, and one of the one of the cool things that the documentary shows is that Ronnie uh, Ronnie would sit with a tape recorder and a bass guitar and he would sort of map out these songs 
and he would come to a a general idea of like what the song is going to be. He'd write the lyrics and you know tailor them to the to the beat and stuff. And then like when they went to record, you know they they had these things. Now when they did the first two albums, Vivian came with you know ideas. And I guess when they did Sacred Heart, according to uh, what they talk about in the documentary. Vivian showed up with nothing. They had this time off in between the tour and the recording and everything, and he kind of showed up with nothing. Now, whether that was, uh, you know, writer's block, which is entirely possible, but I guess the way he played it off didn't come off too too well with Ronnie. So the the question begs, who's right here? And it lies one of the major problems with documentaries produced by people who have a vested interest in the project. The documentary is about Ronnie, and it wants to present Ronnie in a positive light, but on occasion, Ronnie wasn't always the the good guy in these type of situations. That being said, I think in this particular instance, Ronnie did what was right for the band, and more importantly for himself, when he kicked Vivian out. Now, Vivian contributed a lot to the band in those early years, but the band is called Dio and not Campbell, so and it's his reputation on the line, and I, I mean... Yeah, he probably deserved to be paid more than he was getting paid. Um, but you look at Ronnie's life, he worked his way up, and I think he felt that he had earned his position to make the decisions and get a bigger piece of the pie. And I think time has shown that that's probably the the truth of the matter and the way it should have gone, because he went on to have great success. And I'm not knocking Vivian. Their their contention between each other. I mean, they 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 definitely have had it out. Um, but I have, if you've heard Vivian speak about Ronnie, it is very rarely positively. But he went on to play with uh, Def Leppard, so I'm sure he's getting paid well. I don't know if he's being paid as much as the other guys in the band. He shouldn't be because he didn't write any of those fucking hit songs. He's been playing a Def Leppard uh, for 20 years, and how many fucking hit songs have they had since then? I can I can think of maybe one uh, from the ten, the X album, the 10th album they did, that was kind of a hit, but not really. That's beside the point. Let's just... Vivian Campbell, he went on and did his thing. Ronnie went on and did his thing, and it is what it is. Um, this point in the documentary, they talk about how the 90s was a rough patch for most metal bands, but I wish they had talked more specifically about some of these individual albums, because regardless of the fact of, you know, they were big hits or not, they, they did spur some incredibly interesting moments in his career. Uh, Rowan Robertson was a 17-year-old prodigy that Ronnie discovered, and if metal had been more in fashion... It would have been cool to have seen another album with this lineup because I think Rowan and Ronnie, they they had kind of a uh, an interesting uh, path to take. And that, that 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 album is really, really underrated. Um, you know, fast forward to the late 90s and, you know, classic metal is starting to see a revival. Judas Priest, Iron Maiden are reuniting with their original singers or their most classic singers. And DOE was right there in the mix. He released Magica in 2000, and they didn't dwell on too much specifically on these albums. But for my money, this is my favorite Dio solo album. It's this like kind of cool 
sci-fi fantasy concept album that reminds me of like the Lord of the Rings mixed with maybe like 2001 or something. It what really matters is the music and Magica delivers. I I absolutely love Magica. Then you got fast forward 2007, the Metal Faithful were gifted a awesome compilation called the Dio Years, which would see three new songs written under the Black Sabbath banner. The Banneker moniker. I'm trying to say banner and moniker at the same time. Under the Black Sabbath moniker, and then they did a tour under the banner of Heaven and Hell. Now, we won't get into the legality as to why, but it is what it is. Um, the tour is super successful, and this leads to the recording of The Devil You Know. And I have a specific story that makes this album all the more special to me. And um, it's still up. Black-Sabbath.com. I was on there constantly because I'm, you know, metalhead who just wants more Black Sabbath music. And with that, whether it was with Ozzy or Tony Martin or Dio, I just wanted it to happen. When Sabbath got back together in, in the 90s, they recorded a bunch of music. And then they never released it because Ozzy was on the fucking Osbournes at the time. And we still have not been given those those songs. Whether or not they will ever be released officially, who the fuck knows. But it just makes me sick to my stomach that that shit is just sitting on somebody's shelf and it's not coming out. But I was still hopeful. Like, I'm going to check there every day. And you know, you know what? Maybe we'll get an announcement that this shit's going to be released. But you know what happened? Something else got released, and that was the fucking Dio Years uh, uh, album compilation. Three new songs, The Devil Cried, Shadow the Wind, and Ear in the Wall, and it sold really well. And it, it led these guys to going back out on tour and and reuniting, and they'd put a lot of their petty shit to rest and they they got along famously during this point because they'd all been through ups and downs and the guys in Sabbath weren't doing the drugs anymore, at least not the hard ones. I'm sure they all smoked some weed and drank some beers on occasion, but that, you know, you wouldn't be a rock band if you weren't doing some of that stuff. But black-sabbath.com has a contest. Design an alternate cover for The Devil You Know, which was the upcoming album for Heaven and Hell. I, along with a handful of other people, won this contest. What did we win? We won an autographed copy of the album. But that, as cool as that is, because if you look at it, we got Vinny Apice, you've got Geezer Butler, you got Tony Iommi, and Ronnie James Dio all autographing the same CD cover like that. That's amazing in of itself, but they're the ones who picked the winners. So even though I never had the opportunity to meet Ronnie, Ronnie indirectly interacted with me when he picked my cover. And I mean, if you go on black-sabbath.com and look back far enough to like 2009, I guess, in their, uh, you know, in their feed, you'll see the announcement. And I, I have it framed here in the Black Lodge. I only have a couple of things that like would be like soul destroying if I lost. Like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm a collector and I have tons of stuff that like would break my heart if it was gone. But 
that and my handwritten letter from Betsy Palmer, the mother from the original Friday the 13th, if I lost those things, I would probably, I'd, I'd take a short walk off a long pier. Or a long walk off a short pier. I never get that fucking analogy right, but you know what I'm saying. It it means that much to me, and it means even more to me now than it did to then. But I remember the moment where, when I found out that that I had won, I got this email, and it went into my fucking spam folder, and I'm very nearly clicking on it to delete it, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is from Black Sabbath. And I had forgotten I'd even entered it, because this was like months later. And... I fucking click on it. And I mean, I squealed like a fucking baby girl, like just a newborn baby. I lost my shit. I was at work and the people around me thought that like somebody had died. You know, I, I, I nearly broke down in tears. In fact, I had to go to the bathroom and I had, you know, a joyful cry in private. It meant that much to me. And it still means that much to me today. July 30th, 2009, Ronnie would play his final concert to 70,000 diehard fans at the Wacken Festival in Germany, and less than a year later, he would be dead, uh, taken by stomach cancer. The way that I found out about Ronnie passing, um, I need to kind of back up and and tell you a, a preceding story. So, May 14th, 2010, that, that was my birthday. This was a Friday. And I, I went out with some friends, like after work, and we we went and ate, and I ended up in the rhythm section in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I had like some you know, birthday money from like an aunt or a grandmother, and I'm like, I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna buy something. And I have no idea if I bought anything or not. That that part has escaped my mind, but the thing I remember vividly about being in there is that you know, they're playing like a, a random assortment of like music, mostly rock music, but you know, it's always like weird stuff that plays in there. And all of a sudden, Gypsy comes on and me and the person behind the counter, we lock eyes and it was just like this moment where we both nod at each other like, yeah, fucking Ronnie James Dio. And Gypsy, I don't know what it is about that song, but it's my favorite Dio solo song and considering the the touted legend of those albums you know stand up and shout we rock um uh, all the fools sailed away egypt the chains are all like i could go on and on and on about great fucking Dio solo songs i don't know what it is about that song but i listen to Dio uh with without all near nearly a fault every day of my life that's not an exaggeration but I can tell you 100% that that Saturday, I didn't hear any Dio. I don't know why. It just was like, it was just a quiet silence. And I I went about my day. And that night, I actually fell asleep on my couch. And I woke up to a text message from a friend named uh, Brandy Rogers. And I mean, I... I was pissed off at her for even telling me this. I, it was one of the lowest things where I killed the messenger rather than the message. But it, it, she told me that uh, Ronnie had passed away. And um, celebrity deaths don't generally affect me. When I worked 
in the newspaper business. I had to put Leslie Nielsen's obituary in the newspaper, and that one got to me. But more more times than not, like I did the same thing with Michael Jackson, and that wasn't like a heart wrenching thing, but it was a, but it was like a this was a moment in history. But when Ronnie died, it I it took me a while to be able to listen. So that hearing Gypsy has always stuck with me since then, and I think it's made me only love that song more. And when I finally, a couple weeks later, when I was like ready, that was the first thing I put on. And ever since then, it's it's brought me kind of a a different feeling from years prior, where it was just a great song. And, and now it, it has almost this macabre underpinning to it. But Ronnie, Ronnie fought hard for his life and he wasn't about to let it beat him and one of the things they talked about in the documentary is that he he actually lost sight in his eye and and he was like doing really really bad and they gave him these treatments and he was on the road to recovery i mean he got out of the bed his eyesight returned and he got to accept the golden gods you know award and you look at him and this was this was the last public appearance he ever had and um he took another downslide and he he uh, faded away and uh D- Wendy Dio is um long-term manager and and wife uh she told a story that like um she had just spent the night with him like day and night by his bedside and uh she had been up all night with him and like it was early in the morning and she said that like he just he shot up almost like uh he was fighting it to the like the bitter end like he was dying and he was like no trying to shove it off but it he collapsed and that was the moment that he you know his spirit departed his body or you know whatever you whatever you believe and um there's a reason that we support the charity that we support on this podcast, that being the Ryan James Dio Stand Up and Shout Cancer Fund. <sighs> cancer has been an unfortunate thing that uh, us in the podcast have dealt with. And, you know, some some people in the podcast are dealing with things that they don't want publicized, and I won't do that. And then um, Fat Tony, you know, his his dad, Roger, he, he lost him to uh, to cancer and just this past week, I found out um, my my stepdad had had uh, surgery, and they found a tumor in his kidney, and uh, it's still early, so there's a good possibility that it may not be cancerous. It may be benign, and we're certainly hoping for that. But you know, if it does turn out to be cancer, um, that just that's just going to add the the more level of importance into why this is our our preferred charity. When we started doing conventions this past year, I had a lot of people saying like, "Why don't you keep that money for yourself?" And because I, I I dump a lot of my own money into this, you know the the stuff we make, and I'm like, my perspective is I am able bodied 
and self-sufficient enough financially to take a hit on occasion. And if the things we do can get somebody to donate that money to charity for a positive cause, then that's going to make me feel better than being able to buy another movie for the shelf here in the Black Lodge. I'm trying not to get emotional, but um, cancer sucks. And for those of you out there that have dealt with it in your lives, I I, I sympathize with you. My my uncle and my aunt both, you know, passed away from from cancer. My um, my my grandfather on my mom's side, he he had colon cancer and he he actually beat it. Um, so there is hope. There is hope, but um, all too often does the the dragon that that is breathing down your neck um, it just doesn't get slayed. Um, but that just makes me it makes me love Dio all the more because he went out fighting and he he was such a positive force in the world. And I, and I can't say enough positively about how a positive outlook can affect your life because if you're a negative and I am guilty of this um, being a half glass, half empty person sometimes, but a positive outlook, you know, for whatever reason it can move mountains in terms of your physiology. So having a positive outlook is a positive thing. And um, so if you're going through this, uh, stay positive and uh, stand up and shout. Yeah, uh, please go to if you can, if you can, if you can donate, even if it's a dollar, uh, docancerfund.org, and um, that will that will greatly help somebody out there who desperately needs it. All right, heavy stuff out of the way. Um, after the documentary, there were some deleted scenes, and uh, I want to touch base on a couple of them, and then we'll wrap this episode up. Uh, Wendy Dio tells a story about how she had uh, bought a garden gnome to put in the the back of their yard in their house and somehow it rolled down the hill and it cut the tip of Ronnie's thumb off. Thankfully they were able to have it reattached, but he was concerned it would look weird when he threw the devil horns. And oh shit. That's something I, I, I didn't mention earlier. Let's, let's take a little trip back in time. So Dio's grandmother, she was this Italian immigrant and she had some old world superstitions and the hand gesture, which is actually called the Maloic, um, which can, you know, protect you from the evil high. Um, Ronnie tells a story in the doc about, you know, that you can attribute him doing it in Sabbath to his grandmother, but um, he started using it in Sabbath as sort of a way of means of like separating himself from Ozzy, but at the same time paying tribute to him. Um, you can listen to that audio portion and you'll get the context far better than I can explain it because even I was like, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it is what it is. Um, uh, back to those deleted scenes. Um, so one day the, the cops, they showed up at Ronnie's house, um, because this kid had climbed a water tower and he was threatening to jump. Ronnie had just got back from a tour and, uh, he had just landed and Wendy calls him and is like, hey, they they asked you to try and talk this kid down so he doesn't jump and kill himself. And Ronnie did. He successfully got this guy down. And I think this speaks volumes to the person he was and what he meant to people, what he means to people. His words, his music, they just they resonate. And I can't 
I can personally attest to the fact that he made the world a better place and he's still doing it. It's been 12 years since he died, but that flame, it's never going to be extinguished. Long live rock and roll and long live the memory of the man on the Silver Mountain. Uh, we're going to be back in November with a regularly scheduled program. In the meantime, please subscribe to one of the many platforms we're available on, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on social media at Rance Black Lodge and stop by our homepage at JuicyCruder.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, buy a sticker or a mug from our web store at RantArmy.com. Till next month, Rant Army, keep marching. Keep marching.